Right, as many of you know, we recently started another study here, and uh, that's in the book of Romans. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1 tonight, we've got the technical aspects hopefully under control here. It's wonderful uh, to be living in this technological age. Uh, I said something about a fellow that said he was educated beyond his intelligence. I think sometimes our technology is beyond our intelligence sometimes as well. Uh, but uh, uh, we got, I think we got it working now, so uh, let's uh, move into our study tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about the credentials of Paul the Apostle. We started this last uh, Sunday evening, and uh, we want to go into part two tonight as we began our study. In verse one, the Apostle Paul introduced himself to the Roman saints. Uh, he had never met these people. He wanted them to uh, to let them know that he was really on the up and up. Uh, it seems that in those days there were some people running around claiming to be servants of the Lord when actually they were out for financial gain. Well, it seems like we've got some people like that today, running around uh, uh, trying to claim they're servants of the Lord, but they're really in it for the financial gain. Uh, sounds like today. But after Paul introduces himself personally by sharing some facts about the messenger... Uh, he moves on into his message. Now, this is the foundation of the book of Romans. It's a book about the essential elements of Christianity. And beginning with the gospel and moving into the deeper truths of the Christian faith, Paul shares uh, the mind of God with the Roman Christians. And as we travel through this great book, we too are going to encounter the truths that will be life-changing for us. Now, last week we looked at the facts about the messenger. In verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel. Here, uh, in verse 1, we learn Paul's condition. We learned about his condition. He was a servant. Uh, we learned about his calling. Uh, he was also an ambassador. We also learned about his commission, that Paul had been set apart to carry the gospel of God to the lost world. And in that one verse, we learned a great deal about the Apostle Paul. And then tonight, I would like to continue and talk about Paul's credentials as we move into verse 2 and beyond. And so tonight, let's look at the foundation of Paul's message, first of all. Uh, we see this in verses 2 uh, through 5. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see the Apostle's message was centered in on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you may note in your Bible that verse 2 is in parentheses. But actually verses 2 uh, through 6 serve as a sort of parentheses in that it gives us the definition of the gospel that's spoken about in verse 1. He says, separated under the gospel of God, and then he kind of gives a parentheses here and explains what that gospel is. Well, first of all, that gospel involves Jesus, the promised one. Notice verse 2, it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel that involves the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus was not an afterthought with God. He had been declaring that his son would come and that he would die for the sins of humanity. The gospel was not a new thing, it was really something older than man himself. You look in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him 
whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Now the Old Testament scriptures speak of the Lord, uh, but also in verse of John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, They, uh, they, that is the scriptures, are they which testify of me. Uh, the sacrifice of the Messiah is plainly foretold in the Old Testament. You just have to read Isaiah chapter 53 to find that. Uh, the Old Testament is filled with types and symbols that point to the coming Savior. You notice especially Adam and the, the ark and the manna and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And we could go on and on and on. Many different uh, pictures of uh, types and symbols of the coming Savior. All of these things pointed ahead to the one who was to come. Every little lamb that was killed in a sacrifice gave testimony to the one who was coming later. The Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament is a message that God loves mankind and that God presents a way of saving mankind. And that brings us into a loving relationship because He loves us and gave Himself for us. So Jesus was the promised one. Secondly, Jesus is the powerful one. Notice verse 3 and 4. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ... Our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. These verses tell us the gospel is far more than just a recollection of the Old Testament prophecies. It's far more than that. Now, the gospel is about a person named Jesus Christ. And these verses say a lot about his power and his position. Notice, first of all, his position. His position. He's the Son of God. Jesus Christ was just not an ordinary man. He, in fact, was the very Son of God. Now, I don't understand all the mechanics of it, but God the Father took uh, a virgin by the name of Mary and caused her to conceive without the benefit of a human partner. Luke 1.35 tells us that the child she carried in her womb was none other than the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord Jesus. I think that one of the greatest mysteries of all time is how God could robe Himself in human flesh, and yet that's exactly what He did. Uh, if you hold your place there in Romans uh, chapter 2, uh, go over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, uh, we find uh, uh, what the explanation of, of this. Christ Jesus, it says in verse uh, 6, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant as and was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, when Jesus walked on this earth, he was not divine man, and he wasn't really a human God. But he was Jesus, the God-man. He was 100% God and he was 100% man. Uh, I can't explain that. Uh, Only God can accomplish that. But he's God. 
And that's the mystery that's, uh, that our uh, mortal, finite minds can never really grasp, uh, grasp I think, and on this side of heaven. But if you look into uh, Philippians chapter 2 here, a little bit deeper, uh, you see there's some order here. Several words in these verses demand our attention and our understanding, understanding concerning who Jesus is. Verse 6, uh, there, the Bible says Jesus who was in the form of God. That word form refers to the very essence of his being. Now, one could not be in the form of God and not be God, for God is a spirit. Uh, Jesus was in very, in very essence God. And yet verse 7 says that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. Again, the very same word. Jesus became the very essence of a servant. However, it's worthy to note the word being in verse 6. Who being, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That word being there is a verb. And give you a little English lesson here, maybe a, a little bit of Greek on the, on the side, but it's in the present participle. Now you young people who are studying English, you you go back and look at your English books and find out what the present participle means. Basically, it means he continued to be in the form of God. That is, while he became a man in every way, he remained God. He was literally the God-man. And then in verse 7, in verse 7 it says, you have the word likeness there. But made of himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a certain servant, and was made in the likeness of man. Now that word means resemblance. Well, Jesus remained God inwardly, outwardly. He had every attribute of a, per, uh, of a person, a human being, a human, except for one thing. He didn't have a sinful nature. He was just like you and me, but he didn't have a sinful nature. Now, had any of us seen Jesus when he walked here on this earth, uh, we probably wouldn't have known him by just see, looking at him. We wouldn't have known him from any other human. Isaiah 53 and verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and we, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You know, when you look at uh, our artist's rendering of what they think Jesus might have looked like, they might sometimes kind of put a, a glow around him or a halo or something. Jesus didn't walk around with that, okay? That's just the artist trying to make Jesus stand out from the rest of the people there. Now, in verse 8 here in Philippians 2, this verse tells us that Jesus was found in the fashion of mankind. This word refers to his physical form. Paul's saying that Jesus Christ was a real man. Uh, Some are saying today that Jesus was just a spirit. He had really no flesh. And yet Paul tells us that he literally became a man so that he would give his life and death for the sins of the world. It would have been impossible to nail a spirit to the cross. You're going to nail something to the cross, you got to, it's got to be something there. And so the conclusion then is a very easy one to reach. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the God-man. And so we see his position back here in Romans concerning his son, Jesus Christ, a real person, a real man. That's his position. Secondly, we see his person. You know, uh, Paul here takes... 
three titles of the Lord, and then he kind of piles them up one on the other. And it's just to explain more about, about who Jesus is. It says, first of all, he is Jesus. Now that's his human name. That's his title. Uh, it was actually a title of humiliation. It's interesting to note that the demons always referred to Jesus Christ by, uh, by this name only. They only called him Jesus. Now, that was his human name. But also, he was Christ. Now, the word Christ there means anointed, the anointed. The name is his official title. It portrays Jesus as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. We could go back to the Old Testament and look at these words uh, uh, but we won't tonight. But uh, in Jesus Christ, he is, the, is found the one who had been promised before the foundation of the world. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Christ means the anointed. So his name is Jesus. His name is Christ. And then thirdly, his name is Lord. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that third title mentioned by Paul is the title of Lord. That is a title of exaltation. The word reminds us that he is the victor over death and the grave. He's the resurrected and exalted one. Uh, He's to be honored. He's to be feared. He's to be obeyed. And he's to be served. He's our Lord and Master. We are to honor him and fear him and serve him. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and and Christ. So we see his position. Secondly, we see his person. And thirdly, we see his pedigree. His pedigree. The last portion of verse 3 here is, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And then all of verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This tells us about this man named Jesus. Uh, In these verses, we're given his pedigree. Uh, Paul gives us in these verses the credentials, if you please, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice there his human credentials. Paul tells us he came from the kingly line of David, and as such, Jesus is qualified to sit upon the throne as the king of the Jews. Now, when the Bible says that he was made, it literally means to become Jesus is God, yet he became a man so that he might live among us and die for us. He walked as we walk. He suffered as we suffered. He bled as we bleed. And therefore, since he is a man and he lived as a man, he's more qualified to aid us in our time of difficulty. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus which whom he crucified both Lord and Christ. Uh, I believe that was Acts uh, 2.36, actually. And then his heavenly credentials. While Paul says that Christ was the Son of God, that is, a man, or Son of David, that is, a man, he also tells us that the proof that Jesus is the Son of God, and there are two proofs here, given in verse 4, that declare his heavenly credentials. Number one is his righteousness, And the very fact that Jesus was born without sin, that he lived without sin, that he died without sin, proves that he was a heavenly uh, in his origin. 
Jesus lived his life as a man by doing what we are expected to do. He yielded totally to the spirit of holiness. And everything that Jesus did, he did as a spirit-filled man. He lived a righteous life by the power of the Holy Ghost. And you know what? We can too. If we yield ourselves to God. Now, will you ever be sinless in this flesh? Certainly not. But if you yield to the Spirit as you should, then you will certainly be sinless. You will sin less. You will not be sinless, but you will sin less, if you get my meaning there. Yielding to the Spirit as we should. And so we see his heavenly credentials, his righteousness, but we also see there in the last part of verse 4, his resurrection. Just as his righteous life proved his heavenly origin, so does his resurrection from the dead. You see, death could not hold Jesus. He He was perfectly holy. He submitted to death for our sakes. And all others who have ever lived and died are gone from this earth forever, but not Jesus. He died and he conquered death so that those who follow him might enjoy eternal life. Now, before I move on, I'd like to maybe spend a few more minutes on the duality of of Christ's nature. While he was here on earth, there are certain instances when you see the dual nature on display. Just let me give you three of them. The first one uh, is in Matthew chapter 17. Let's just uh, go back to Matthew chapter 17 and look at this for a moment. Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. <clears throat> Matthew 17, verse 24 through 27. It says, And they, when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money from uh, came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He said, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter Peter saith unto him, Of strangers, Jesus saith unto him, Then are the, the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Now in that passage, we find Peter coming to Jesus because some were asking whether Jesus was going to pay his taxes or not. And nothing is more human than paying taxes, right? Uh, we love it, don't we? But uh, today it seems like we're taxed to death almost. Uh, we got taxed for this and that and everything else. But Jesus responds to Peter by telling him that kings are exempt from taxes, but they, uh, to avoid offending anyone, he would pay his taxes. Uh, his method of, of getting money proved his deity. And so he sends Peter down to the lake to cast in his hook, and he tells Peter that he will find the money in the fish's mouth. Think about that. Jesus is saying, go to the lake that I created. I know that one of my creatures has dropped a coin into the lake. And my law of gravity caused it to sink into the water. And I commanded one of my fish to take that coin in its mouth and not to swallow it. And when you cast in your hook, 
I will command my fish to take it. And when the land, when you land that fish, the money will be in its mouth and you'll pay your taxes, our taxes, to the other people that I created who work for a government that I allow to rule. <laughs> Ever thought about it that way? You know, sometimes we think fishing is just, you, you just got to be lucky to be a fisherman, right? You just go, you know, now I know some of you guys can really have, you really have some skill and you know how to, you know how to bring them in. For me, it's luck. <laughs> I have no skill in fishing, all right? All else, I have no patience for it. But here, this was not just something that just happened. Jesus said, go to the lake that I created and go drop your, your hook into the, and a fish that I, I created will, will take it. And there's a coin going to be there. It's, a, it's an amazing way to realize that Jesus is in control. God is in control. And so we see the duality of his nature here in this instant. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark 34, verse 35, it says, In the same day when the even was coming, was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took even uh, him even as he was in the ship, and there was also uh, with him other little ships, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat upon, into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep in the pillow, and they wake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? One of the, after one of the toughest days in the ministry, Jesus enters into a ship with his men. They're going to cross over to the other side of the lake, and when he gets into the boat, he appears to be very human here at this point, doesn't he? He's tired. And he falls asleep. He's literally exhausted. He falls asleep in the, in the rear of the ship. And when he, is, he sleeps, there's a storm that comes. The disciples who are seasoned boatmen are afraid of the storm and they fear they're going to die. And they awaken Jesus and he gets up and he speaks to the storm and he said, peace be still. And when he does, the storm stops in obedience to the Creator, the Lord Jesus. You see his dual nature here. In Mark 4, verse 35 through 41. One more, and that's in Luke 23. Turn to Luke 23. Luke 23, verse 39. Luke 23, and verse uh, 39 says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art the same, in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto you, Today thou shalt, shalt, uh, today shalt thou be with me in paradise." 
Now, in this passage, Jesus has been nailed to the cross. He's doing a very human thing. He's bleeding and he's dying. However, one of the thieves that was crucified with him turns to him and asks him for salvation. Jesus does something that's very divine here. Very godlike. He saves him. He's doing something human. He's bleeding. He's dying. A man turns to him for salvation and he saves the man. He promises him a home in paradise when he dies. Now, if nothing else tells us that Jesus was both God and man at the same time, then these three passages ought to clear that up forever. He proved his identity and his deity countless times throughout his life. Our duty is to learn and to take the Bible at face value and believe what it says about our Lord. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the powerful one. And then thirdly, Jesus is the performing one. Look at verse 5. It says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. Paul wants to share one more thought about the Lord Jesus before he moves on. He tells us we have received three things from the Lord Jesus. I want you to note the word we in verse 5. We, three things. What are the three things that we've received? First of all, we received grace. Grace is the unmerited love and favor of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Through grace we are saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are kept through grace and we're cared for by grace. It's by grace that we understand the promise of the, of an eternity with eternity with Jesus in heaven. Grace is something we don't deserve. Getting something we don't deserve and we don't deserve heaven, but by his grace we have received this wonderful promise. So we receive grace. Secondly, we receive gifts here, according to verse 5. Paul says we've received apostleship. Now, if you remember the word apostle, what's that mean? It means sent one. Sent one. Now, there is no longer an office of apostles. But you know what? All of us have been sent. That is, we all have been gifted to do the work of the Lord's service. We've been drafted, if you please, into His mission. We've all been sent out to be witnesses for the glory of the Lord. What are we doing to get His Word out in these days? Now, I fear that many uh, in churches have developed the mindset that witnessing is just for the paid staff. And yet I think the Bible is very abundantly clear when it tells us every child of God is to be a worker in the Lord's harvest field. And so we've been given gifts. We've received gifts. The gift of being sent with a message of salvation. And then thirdly, we've received goals. I don't mean the kind of goals you and I might set uh, where if we make them, great, and if we don't, no big deal. I'm not talking about a New Year's resolution that you might have made nine months ago (laughs) and you broke it the first week. You haven't thought about it since. I'm not talking about that kind of uh, goal. 
I'm talking about the goal of obedience. The goal of obedience. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Notice what it says here. For obedience to the faith among all nations for His name. The epistle opens with obedience and it closes with obedience. In the last chapter, I'm going to kind of give you a heads up here on the last chapter. I know you don't like to do that. You don't like to see what happens at the end when you read a book, right? None of you ever look at the ending. But in the final chapter, Paul says, For obedience has come abroad unto all men. Chapter 16, verse 26. Obedience to the faith is very important to God. God saves us by faith, not by works. And after He has saved us, He wants us to, He wants to talk to us about our works, about our obedience to Him. Now I hear many people talk about believing in Jesus, but then they live like the devil and they seem to be serving the devil rather than the Lord. Listen, saving faith makes you obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, is there a difference in faith? There surely is. The difference is in the object of our faith. For example, I believe in George Washington. I believe in George Washington. I consider George Washington to be a great man. I've read about him. I've studied him. He was the first president of our, our, our uh, uh, nation. He was the father of our country, so to speak. Also, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, my faith in George Washington has never done a thing for me. My faith in George Washington has never done anything for me. It has nothing to do with my salvation. It has very little effect upon my life. But my faith in the Lord Jesus is quite different. Saving faith brings us to the place where we surrender to the Son of God who loves us and gave Himself for us. And while correct doctrine is very important... There is a discipline, and that uh, is a doing that goes with the doctrine. You can't be the salt of the earth without combining both of them. By the way, have you ever considered that salt is composed of sodium and chloride? Now, how many of you put salt on your food? Lots of you do, most of you do. It's made of sodium and chloride. But if you take just sodium or just chloride, they're poisonous. But if they're combined, they form a very useful ingredient. Believing and doing go together and make us the salt of the earth. We not only have to have faith, but we also have to have works in our life. Works don't save us. But they go together, just like the sodium and the chloride for the salt. Trust and obey, as the song says. For there's no other way. But we're not quite ready for singing yet. But let's look at the, as we've looked at the facts about the messenger and the foundation of his message, let's also look at the focus of his ministry. Verse 6 and 7. In verse 6 it says, Among whom are, whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the last two verses of this passage, Paul turns his attention to the people to which he is writing. He tells them 
three great things that need to be noted because that was true of them. and What was true of them is also true of us this evening. First of all, we've been called to be saved. Or we're called to be saved. Verse 6, he says, Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them that they share with him one of the greatest honors ever to be bestowed upon any person. They've received the sovereign call of God to be saved. Man in his natural state is dead to God and to the voice of God. But Ephesians uh, uh, 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened. The word quickened means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And yet when he is quickened by the Holy Spirit, he will hear the call of God for salvation. No man can be saved when and where he chooses, but only when the Lord calls him to come. John 6.44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now there are some glories of salvation. Number one, you see there is sin is taken away. John 1, 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Colossians two thirteen and 14, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgotten or forgiven you all transgression or trans- trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Sin has been taken away. That's a glory of salvation. Secondly, we're claimed by God. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, Beloved, now that... Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is, and every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. We've been declared righteous by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor infeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor uh, or drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I'm so thankful for that. Been declared righteous by God. And then fourthly, we've been brought nigh to God. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off were made nigh by the blood of Christ. There are dozens of more benefits that could be named here, but this will suffice uh, t- for us to see that salvation is a very special gift from the Lord. So we've been called to be uh, saved. But also we've been called to be sons. Verse 7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now when he says they are beloved of God, it's a known fact that God loves all men, saints and sinners alike, right? Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 
Now, what does the apostle mean when he says that the redeemed are beloved of God? I think he means the same thing we mean when we talk about love. By the grace of God, it is impossible to love all men in the Lord. As far as I know, I try to do that. And yet there are probably at least seven people or six people in my family. They're a lot closer to my heart than any, anyone else. We used to be the Flaming Seven. It was on our, our tag. Didn't we have it on a tag? The Flaming Seven. When we had a, one of those personalized license tags. Uh, we were seven. That was a perfect number, right? Seven's a perfect number. Now, there should have been eight. We lost one. And that's okay with me, too. That little one's in heaven. And we're thankful for that. But our family, uh, those in my family are a lot closer. Now, they've all got, uh, most of them have got married, not all of them, but they've got married and they've got little children. Now they get, boy, that love gets spread out, doesn't it? But I love all men in the Lord, but those in my family are beloved to me. I hope we can see the difference of, of loving all men in the Lord and perhaps our family is beloved. God loves all men, but the saints, the ones in His family, His children, have a special place in the heart of God that no other people on earth can share. We're called to be sons, beloved of God. And then we're called to be saints as well. Called to be saints Not only beloved of God, but to be saints. These Roman Christians were also called saints. That is, they were called to live lives that are separated and sold out for the Lord. Uh, They were to be different from the pagans who lived all around them. They were to be light in the dark world. God still holds the same expectation for you and me tonight. His plan for our lives is that we become different than others who live around us. It does, he does not want His children to live like the world, but He wants us to live like Him. And that's why He tells us that we become new creatures when we come to Him and that our walk should match His as we go through the world. You see, the word, word saint, what's that mean? Well, it means something completely different if you look at it biblically rather than from religion. From religion, you know, you've got to be elected to be that saint. You know, you've got to be chosen to be a saint. Well, I'd rather be chosen by God to be a saint. And God calls us a saint. What does it mean? It means holy, set apart, and sanctified. It carries the idea of being totally set apart and dedicated to the Lord's service. doesn't mean we're perfect, but God expects from us a dedication a service that's set apart for his, his, uh, his honor, His glory. He did not save our souls to serve the devil. He did not save us to serve the flesh, or the world. He saved us that we might be vessels of honor unto Him as we pass through this wicked, sin-cursed world. question is tonight, are we living like saints? Because that's what we're called here to the whole to be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. 
Paul concludes his introductory remarks, he finishes by bestowing a blessing upon the Romans. It says prayer here. He's find it in the, in the last part. It says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That'd be the same prayer I would have for each one of you tonight. Now, I don't know your heart tonight. I can't see into your heart. I don't know where you stand this evening, but I do know that if there are problems that you need help with, you know where the answer to those problems is? It's right here. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His Word. And if you're lost, the Lord will save you. I don't know tonight, perhaps some of you or there's someone here tonight that's out of the Lord's will. But you know what? He'll receive you back into fellowship and He'll forgive your sins if you come to Him and surrender to Him. So if there's a need in your heart, you need to bring it to the Lord. If the Lord has dealt with you concerning sin in some manner through these verses, then you need to get get it right with Him before you pillow your head uh, tonight. What will you do with the Lord with Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father in heaven...